Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I am very pleased to introduce you today to Ms. Karen Raposa. Karen currently holds the title of Senior Clinical Education Manager with Hugh Freedy Group, a division of Cantel Medical Corporation. Karen is a registered dental hygienist with a master's in business administration from the University of Massachusetts and over 35 years experience in the dental profession. She has spent the last 19 years consulting with faculty, residents, and students in dental and dental hygiene programs in both the U.S. and Canada and to help implement their clinical programs. Karen received her Bachelor of Science degree in dental hygiene from the University of Rhode Island. She practiced in both general and periodontal practices and taught as an adjunct faculty member at the Bristol Community College. Prior to joining Hugh Friede, Karen worked in sales, marketing, and professional relations positions for both Procter & Gamble, World B, and Colgate. She also held a faculty position in the Department of General Dentistry at Boston University. Today, Karen is an international speaker, contributing author, and co-editor of the textbook, Treating the Dental Patient with Developmental Disorder, and has written several journal articles. She serves on the New York University's Oral Health Center for People with Disabilities Advisory Board and the Advisory Board for Project Accessible Oral Health. In 2013, she was awarded the title as one of the top 25 women in dentistry, and in 2018, she earned the title of Certified Central Service Vendor Partner with the International Association of Healthcare Central Service Material Management. It is indeed my pleasure now to bring you to my interview with Karen Raposa. Karen, it's so good to have you join the show today. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your, I know, very busy day to spend some time with me. And like I always do, I'd love for you to start by sharing your story with the audience on how you got into dentistry you know, what you're doing now as your role and how you got there. So if you would like to start with that, I'd love it. MJ, it's a pleasure to be here, MJ. So thank you so much for having me. So I got into dentistry many, many years ago. So without giving away my age, <laughs> I will tell you that I started as a dental assistant in high school. I was very fortunate. My uncle actually happened to be the guidance counselor in my high school. He got a phone call from a local dentist who said he wanted to train a dental assistant. And my uncle just came to class and pulled me out and said, is there any interest? Now, I thought I was going to be a nurse. I am so glad, so glad I did not go into nursing for a lot of reasons. But that was where things started. And I really thought I wanted to actually be a dentist. This dentist that I worked for did not have a hygienist, but when I really spent some time thinking about my, my life as a kid and when I went to the dentist and who I saw routinely and who I had a relationship with and actually who helped me not be so afraid, that was the dental hygienist. So that's kind of how things got started. And I went to the University of Rhode Island. The best advice my dad ever gave me was to make sure that I did not just get an associate's degree. He really wanted me to get a bachelor's degree. And that was really good advice because 
Had I started with the associate's degree and then I started my family very young, right out of college, it would have been a real huge undertaking to go back to school for the bachelor's before even thinking about the master's degree. So that early on was very good advice. I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Rhode Island in dental hygiene. And I think it wasn't long. I practiced for about five years in a general practice and realized that I wanted more. I loved teaching. So I started teaching part-time at Bristol Community College um, as an adjunct faculty member in their dental hygiene program and had a lot of great mentors there. Kathleen Torpy Garganta actually advanced her career as a dental hygienist at that school into actually an associate dean position. And she always coached me and mentored me and encouraged me. One of the things she always used to say to me is, okay, so once you get your speaking, you're comfortable with that, you got to get published. You got to get published. She would say that to me all the time. And so because I was teaching in a state-funded school, I was able to have a little bit of help with some tuition and decided when I looked at a master's in education or a master's in science, I felt that an MBA was going to give me really the broadest opportunities. And it was really interesting because I remember in all my interviews, you know, you had to go and sit and talk with somebody and they'd six or seven people sometimes they'd say, why do you want your MBA? You're a dental hygienist. And I heard that over and over and over. And when I would explain, you know, that there's a whole different world to dentistry that is the manufacturers and the representatives, the sales representatives, and that those people need to understand dentistry to be able to do those jobs well they really started to get the idea. But there was no such thing as fast track. There was no such thing as online. So <laughs> I was teaching, I was practicing as a dental hygienist. I was also asked to do some business management in the office where I was practicing. And I went back to school for my MBA, along with having my third child. So <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> So it was not the easy route, that's for sure. It took a lot of grit, if you will, but I just persevered. Uh, was even invited to be on the Honor Society, the Beta Gamma Sigma International Honor Society in business during that time. So it was the best decision that I ever made was to get that MBA. Because one of the things I learned very early on was a couple of things. All those letters at the end of your name they mean something because that is what you know. But what was critical to my career was also who I knew. So I stayed connected, right? All of my colleagues from dental hygiene school, I stayed connected with them. I stayed active in my association so that I was connected with other dental hygienists. And making, keeping those social connections was critical because once I had that MBA, I was actually still teaching at Bristol Community College, and a friend of mine was working for Oral-B, and she was a friend from college. She reached out to me, and she said, you know, we have this advisory board, and we need hygienists who have done a variety of different things, who are practicing and teaching or maybe working in the industry. She recommended me, and that's really how my career in the industry started because I was invited to interview for that board and I sat on that board for two years. They had two meetings a year 
they sent you to some beautiful places where you sat around for several days talking about marketing campaigns and new product development. And so when those two years were up, I had an opportunity to take a position with the company. They actually invited me on. So that role was uh, sales in schools. And also was, I was then promoted to marketing because I had my degree in business administration. So I was responsible for launching their Rembrandt whitening products and their fluorides. I was responsible for marketing their profi pastes and profi angles. And so that was really, really fun to get to see kind of from start to finish how a product comes to market. They were purchased. So they, at the time they were owned by Gillette. They were purchased by Procter & Gamble, and I decided I missed teaching. I kind of kept going back to teaching. So I had an opportunity to go back and teach at Boston University. So I was on the faculty there in the Department of General Dentistry. I worked with Dr. Judith Jones over there in their uh, APEX program. You may be familiar with they had their students go out to do some dental assisting. So I did that for quite a while, but we know, MJ, this, this industry is very small and people know where people go in the industry. And Colgate Palmolive had heard that I left Oral-B and the previous Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, you may know Dr. Fodi Panagakos. He's now the Dean at, uh, yeah, he's, a, he's the Dean at West Virginia now. And he had heard that I left Oral-B and he was actually working now as scientific manager affairs at Colgate Palmolive. So he reached out to me and said, listen, you have the background we need. They're moving all of their operations out of Canton, Massachusetts, and they're moving them here to Manhattan. And we need somebody to do this. Would you be interested in interviewing? So MJ, this is where my son becomes part of the story. So my youngest son had been diagnosed with autism. And I knew that the schools in New Jersey were the best in the country for young children at the time. So very difficult decision as a family because I loved what I was doing at Boston University, but I knew I needed to get my son into New Jersey. So it was a corporate move. They brought two 18-wheelers to my house and packed everything up. <laughs> I moved my family to New Jersey. And my son, my youngest, got an incredible education and an incredible school there. And I worked for Colgate Palmolive in both marketing, but I was also the senior manager for professional relations with Colgate Palmolive. So I traveled a lot. I kind of had to go to all the major meetings and, you know, get up and speak and talk about what Colgate was doing and how we were partnering with the different organizations and things like that. So that was hard. I did it really for my son. And we were there for about seven years I worked for them. And that's how I ended up with Euphredi because needed to get back to Massachusetts. My son was older. My family is all here. And Euphredi was looking for someone who could manage the school's business like I had done with Oral-B. So kind of came full circle. I heard that there's a name for someone in my position, they call us downshifters, where we're kind of moving up the executive opportunities in that ladder. And then we kind of have to take a step back sometimes because of family. And that's really what has had to drive most of my decisions in corporate. But the beauty of that has been my need to become an expert in autism. 
So while I was at Boston University, I met Dr. Steve Perlman and he became another mentor to me and still is today in his work with people who have developmental and intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. And he encouraged me to get out there and tell my story and reminded me that I you know, have this personal story to tell, including my, my background in the dental industry and that dental professionals didn't learn a lot about that in school. So I happened to be at, a, I think it was the special care dentistry meeting and they had Wiley Blackwell, the publisher, was at one of the was one of the exhibits. And I went up to the table and I looked around and I said, "Where's your textbook on how to help people with intellectual and developmental disabilities when they go for a dental visit?" And they looked at me and they said, "We need a book like that. Do you know anybody who would edit a book like that for us?" <laughs> So I went to Steve and I said, Steve, would you do this with me? Because you know all the people who are actually doing this kind of work and I'm happy to co-edit it with you and put it together. You help me get the authors and we can get this thing done. And it took us six years for that book to be completed and was published in 2013. And so that of course continued to launch my speaking career because of the book and people recognizing you know, the information that was in there and, and that it was available and helpful for them. So I know it's a very long story, but <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great story and amazing. And now I've never heard the word downshift and described such as this. And so I, I find that fascinating. So, you know, thank you for sharing that with the audience because I never knew that that word existed, but so often, I, and I see my daughter struggling with it a little bit now, you know, she's at a senior leadership role and, you know, baby number two's on the way and the struggle with, you know, balancing family and work. Uh, and it's, it's hard. It's, it's not an easy decision to make, but as a mom, you know, our children are young only so long. And then when you have children that, that have a disability, a developmental disability, um, you know, it's all the more challenging. And then some, because, you know, how do you get all the care that you need? And how do you, you know, navigate the system that, you know, tries to keep everybody out, basically, to get what you need in order to fight for your child, right? Yeah, for sure. And it takes a lot of learning what resources there are, but quite frankly, what I've learned over the years, it depends what state you are in too. And so that has made a huge difference for my son, but you're right. I mean, you can't, uh, he's only going to be this age once he's almost 21. And with a child who has an intellectual developmental disability, he's always going to need me. But during this age between 21 and 22, he'll be transitioning into adult programming. So all of that needs to get established now. So there will come a time when he'll be very established as an adult and have his, you know, routines and things that he, you know, is comfortable doing daily. And then what, who knows where my career will, will go from there. Great. Well, it's nice to hear you talk like that because, you know, it sounds like you're not done yet, which is great. Oh. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be done. <laughs> you know, women, and, and that's, that's the, I think, the huge difference between go-getters and 
placeholders, I guess, is, is, you know, the only thing I could think of off the top of my head. But go-getters, you know, they're never done. They just keep on going and going and going. And, you know, at some point we might be done, but, you know, why? I mean, there's always a next challenge to try to, to accomplish and the next goal to try to get to. So why be done? I, I can't imagine ever retiring. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but I can't imagine because why? There's so many other things I want to do. That's right. And you know, MJ, you and I know and knew Dr. Esther Wilkins for many, many years. And one of the things she would always say, and I don't, I know she didn't, she read this quote somewhere, but she used it often. She would say, life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about dancing in the rain, right? And so I always, when I have those moments where I go, um, and they've been a lot of them, (laughs) where you just feel like you're exhausted and you're done, I look for the silver lining. There's a silver lining in everything. You may not know what it is at the moment. Sometimes you have to go and reflect back to what was the silver lining at that moment. Um, But I'm always looking for that silver lining and I always try to be curious, especially if I've had a bad day or if I've had an interaction with someone who that person is having a bad day. I always try to be curious and instead of feeling like it's something I did or that I had any influence over what happened, asking a lot of questions and trying to understand what happened, why it happened what's going on in that individual's life, what's going on in my life. I mean, all that, that curiosity usually leads to uncovering some amazing insights. And that's always been helpful to me. So very true. So your MBA, I'd like to go back to that because not very many women, first of all, in the dental field have MBAs. And, you know, quite honestly, it made a huge impact on my career as well. You know, did you have guidance from somebody putting you in that direction or was it something that innately you just knew was going to support you more in your goals professionally? I'll be completely honest. I was not sure. Ultimately, I knew I wanted to be in industry. So right there, I knew I needed something that had to do with business but I wasn't sure if I wanted research. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a trainer, right? So maybe I needed that more of an educational background. So when I looked at all of my options, really from just a very basic master of science to um, master in education or an MPH, those other degrees I felt pigeonholed me a bit that if I had that MPH, but wanted to be in business, that someone sitting behind a desk who's looking at talent for industry may not see that an MPH actually applies to what you, what you need to know when you're in business. So vice versa, if I was applying for a position in research or in teaching and they were looking at an MBA, that might be a little bit more intriguing for them to say, oh, there, there might be a way that this is a match. So I just felt when I really looked at what I thought I might want to do, that the MBA was, gave me the most broad opportunities. Without a doubt. I felt the same way when I finished mine, that, that it gave me more breadth. And I, I will be honest, when I was deciding whether or not to go to hygiene um, dental school versus business school, because at the time I considered both, 
the reason why I chose dental school first was because it would allow me to get into private practice or my own business faster than an MBA would because I still felt like I would have to work for somebody with an MBA, even with a dental hygiene degree. And I didn't really want to do that. I really have an entrepreneurial spirit. And I felt like, you know, to me, it was much more important for me to have my own practice than it would be for me to work for another company for a couple of years. So good choices on both of our accounts. Uh, I think that no matter what, you can't go wrong with understanding business. I do know that so many things that I did in my private practice might have been avoided if I understood the business principles a lot better early on in my dental career. But I, you don't, and that's okay. It's you, like you said, you know, you can learn something from everything that happens to you in your career and your life. And you just have to look at it from that perspective. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, was definitely all the, and I get that question a lot, very often dental hygiene students, cause you know, I'm working with dental hygiene students and dental school students in this role and giving courses on infection prevention and, and instrumentation and the whole gamut sometimes of very broad topics. And very often students will say, how do I get to do what you do? <laughs> and the one thing I say is be careful what you wish for, because it's not for everyone. You know, one of the things about being a dental hygienist in private practice is when your day is done and a dentist, um, other than you do have to run the business, there's much more to being a dentist. But for a hygienist, your day is done, your day is done. In this position, your work is never done. I mean, if you wanted to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you could. So you need to learn. I remember my very first interview with Oral B, the woman who was interviewing me and became my manager, she said to me once, so I just have to be sure, you don't mind having a laptop surgically implanted in your abdomen, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's said, great wow, is that what it's going to be like? Uh, and she couldn't, I mean, she definitely hit the nail on the head because if you wanted to, you could be working on your laptop constantly. I mean, every, and especially today, I mean, more so today, right? For everybody, we were all connected even outside of business with our phones and laptops and iPads and- And Zoom. Yeah, yeah, and Zoom, and Zoom these days for sure, yeah. Absolutely. All right, so what do you think is the single best piece of advice? I know you shared what your dad, you know, encouraged you to do. Um, is that still the single best piece of advice you've ever gotten, or is there something somebody has told you in the dental world that has led your career down a positive path? Well, two things in addition to what my dad had said. One is just like I said about managing your time. One of the best pieces of advice of advice I ever got was always remember that when someone is asking you for your time, they can't see your personal calendar. So whether it's a customer or it's family or they can't see what you're looking at on your personal calendar. So make sure that you always keep that time that you have blocked off for yourself, keep it there and offer times that are going to work where you're going to be able to take care of yourself yet still be prepared for those family times or those times for the people that you're meeting with in business and that has been so helpful to me in my career because i never walk into someplace unprepared because i've always made the time and i've kept that time for it 
So time management for me, that was really important that I learned that. And the other piece of advice that I do share a lot, I've learned this personally, but I share this a lot with dental students who are thinking about starting their career and having to make business decisions. And one of the things I share is that don't make the mistake when you're looking to spend your dollars on what something costs when you're comparing two items. Don't just look at the cost right at that moment. Look at the cost over time. And, and I give, you know, I give an example because I've learned this in my personal life and I think we all have, right? And I, I talk a lot about, okay, if you buy a nice bathing suit, you spend more than 80 bucks in a nice store, that bathing suit's going to last you as long as it doesn't go out of style for many years, right? You can wash it and rewear it. And so if you paid that amount of dollars, but you wore it 80 times, it only costs you a dollar every time you wore it. Where if you buy a real cheap bathing suit and you wash it twice and it starts to fall apart, you really weren't spending your money wisely because you, for that bathing suit, you maybe spent $30 per use, right? So, so it's one of the pieces of advice I tell students a lot when they're looking to invest their dollars on product is, you know, think about that, spend your money wisely and look at the cost. Both great pieces of advice. And, and I, I will go back to the balance piece because I think even more so now than any other time, you know, we're all doing Zoom meetings from home and Zoom meetings for this, that, and the other thing, trainings for going to classes, everything is being done via video conferencing now. And if that's the case, where do you draw the line for home versus required work or expected work? And yeah, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, there are times when I struggle with that myself. Yeah, you're right. In this environment, especially. And in this environment, everybody knows where we are. And, you know, it's getting a little bit better now. But for a long time, everybody's like, what do you mean you're not answering your home? I know you're home. Where else would you be? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry. I went to the bathroom. <laughs> Can you give me a little bit of a break? <laughs> Seriously. Am I allowed to have my breakfast maybe before I start my day? <laughs> Yeah. Do I have to share my breakfast time with you on the, on the Zoom meeting? I don't think so. No, you can wait five minutes while I finish my breakfast. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. What do you think has helped you the most to get to where you are today? It could be one thing, a couple of things, but what comes to mind? I think a lot of, a lot of times, uh, what, one of the most important people in my life growing up was my grandmother. My grandmother, I think that's where I get my tenacity from. For her, it was different. Her tenacity revolved more around making sure she took care of family, making sure she took care of friends. She never, ever sat still. She would be visiting with people or cooking dinner for all of us or consulting with us. She always, always gave me really, really great advice. And so in my life, that is, I think back to, you know, all of the way she lived her life and what was important to her and how she impacted all of us. So we, there are so many situations today where I step back and say, what would my grandmother have done or thought, or how would she have handled this? And, you know, when I get those phone calls and family wants to do something and I have a choice 
and sometimes you can't get out of it. It's something that's due and you've got a deadline and you got to get it done. But I try to always, you know, think back, okay, my grandmother would have found another time to get that done if she had time to be with family and spend time with family. So, so uh, she's, she's always, um, she's always with me and is always, in fact, one of the courses that I do is on autism and anxiety, but also includes Alzheimer's. So I lost both of my maternal grandmothers to Alzheimer's uh, and unfortunately had to watch both of them, you know, slip away and not recognize their family anymore. And so I really try to hold that dear in the realization of how much time do we have on this planet and what are you going to do with it while you're here, right? Choose wisely, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, great advice from you, grandmother. I, you know, I do think family makes the most impact on us overall if we allow them, right? And if we open our hearts and our, our ears to what they're saying. Some people, you know, block all of that and say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. But quite honestly, their years of wisdom really can shed a lot of light on, on what it is that we're going through if we just have an open heart to, to see what they're saying. Yeah. Towards the end, this one grandmother, my parents were divorced when I was very young. So I spent a lot of time, you know, dad had us every weekend, but really we were at Graham's every weekend. And when I went off to college and came back, I pretty much lived with my grandmother during those summers. Um, and, you know, she would always say to me during the end when she would forget how many times she asked me the question, you still doing that job where you're traveling all the time? Are you still doing that job? She was very upset about that job. But I got to be honest in that my husband has always been so important in all of my career decisions because I could never have done any of this if it wasn't for his support. You know, he decided to take a part time job. I've had kind of the breadwinner job in our family because I had the MBA and I had those opportunities. He's in law enforcement. He works part-time, but chose to work part-time so that he could be there and be the person who was home, you know, the staple. If I had to run off somewhere for business, he was always here. So, so family in a lot of ways <laughs> has had an impact. That's a wonderful piece of your story that I did not know. So let's share a little bit more about that because, you know, quite often that's what's happening in, you know, the next generation's life is that they're co-parenting all the time. You know, I see it with my daughter, you know, they share days when the nanny leaves at four o'clock, you know, one comes down one day, the next one comes down the next day and they spend the rest of the afternoon and let the other parent continue to work until, you know, dinner time, six, six to seven, whatever, you know, they call it a day. But, you know, both have pretty high level jobs. And that is a significant contribution to your family that he made. I mean, good for him. A lot of men, you know, in our age group didn't have the, the confidence in order to allow their spouse to make those decisions and to work, be the breadwinner. So kudos to him. It's one of the things I tell my son and my daughter that when you're looking for your life partner, there are some things, that you, these conversations, you got to just have them up front and you got to be completely honest because there are some things that you're never going to change a person. So it's what that person is and what that person's perspective is, is always going to be. So you've got to decide if that's something that you can live with 
or that's something you can't live with. And you're right. I mean, when I was, when we got married, I was 22 years old. So, you know, we're talking quite a while ago today. I think the, this generation coming up, there's an expectation that both are going to work and, you know, they're going to have to manage that. But that was a little bit different when we got married. And I remember my husband always saying, he always encouraged me to go on for my education. He would be the one when I'd say, oh, I got this project due. And he'd say, "Get go, go over there. You work on the project. I'll take care. Of, you go do this. I'll take care of the kids. But early on when we were dating, he used to tell all his friends, I'm going to marry Karen so I can sit back and eat peaches under the tree. <laughs> That's how he used to describe it to his friends. And I didn't have any money. When we first met, I was as broke as he was, but he saw something in me. And, and that's kind of how, where, where we were when we started was kind of our decision back then. So isn't that fabulous? What a great legacy to leave your children with because your children were able to grow up with a two-parent um, household that saw both working together you know instead of each having their own career you you work together on on balancing that and oh my gosh that's fabulous so kudos to all, to both of you I, I i'm very very lucky to have had him in my life for sure so tell us about an obstacle that you may have overcome that you're really proud of. I think my, I'd have to go with my book uh, and the work that I've been doing in the autism community. There is just so much about that I'm learning as I go, but having the opportunity to share so that those that come after me don't have to learn it the hard way. And there are lots of things that I share in my full presentation on autism where, you know, things that happened to, you know, to my son, including his, you know, in his mouth. I mean, I didn't know that there were, that food was often used as a reward for people with autism. And, and I found that out the hard way because he ended up with a blown out tooth and had to have a pulpotomy. And, and when I, you know, researched it, I'm like, wait a minute all right, so it's got to be when he's not with me because I know what I'm doing when he's with me. And sure enough, you know, so I get to share all the things, you know, the stuff he's, you know, he's self-injurious and he's, you know, also had some times when he's been destructive. So my husband and I get to work with families sometimes and helping them safe, um, make their homes safer so things can't get knocked off the wall or knocked over. Or, and it's all because of what we've learned in raising Tommy and I, I really do feel that he having him in our lives has been an absolute privilege, even if it's you know just a small handful of people that we can can help navigate these waters based on what we've learned. Because I think there's a misconception still about autism. People, when they think autism, they think, you know, these are people who are gifted or are you know independent and but can get through life, and you don't ever see the stories of the people who are really, really struggling with autism and have to be hospitalized in, you know, psychiatric hospitals for months on end. And, you know, those are the stories people don't hear. And, but those people need us in dentistry even more in most cases than those people with autism who are able to be a bit more independent. So do you find that in general, most people understand 
autism or is it the you know opposite that most people don't understand how to manage or what the background to autism is well, what's interesting is the younger, uh, those dentists who are starting dental school today seem to have much more awareness because there's, it's just, I mean, the rates of diagnosis just continue to rise, but it's very dependent still on what they've seen. So if you've only seen someone who is more independent then that's your perception of autism. If you've only seen someone who really is relies on someone else to care for them. And so that's the part that people don't understand in general is that it's a spectrum. That's the part people don't understand in general. And so, you know, recognizing that if you've met one person with autism, that's it. You've only met one person because the next person you meet can be completely different in a lot of different ways. So I think there's still huge opportunities to, you know, educate. And it's really a tough one, MJ, because in think about everything that a dental student needs to learn in order to graduate. Where in the world do you put in these the behavior guidance techniques and the time to learn about the person and be able to understand what's going to what might work what might not work and trial and error and all these pieces that have to come together i i just i almost you know wish there were the a specialty opportunity but then that has its own challenges with how to how does where does payment come from for all this extra time you have to spend so we could talk hours just on that topic and what I've learned over the years and the challenges that there are in, in helping this population, but boy, they need it. They need a lot of help. Well, I know even from my private practice days, I did a fair amount of cerebral palsy patients. I don't know how I, I got started. And, you know, of course, one parent refers another parent and that's how it, it starts. And yes, the level of differences between children and young adults is dramatic. So yeah, if you've met one case, you've met one case, that's it. And I do think, you know, going back to what you mentioned about the academic portion, you know, having come from private practice and now in academia, the gaps, the educational gaps are significant, you know, even from my own perspective, from the business side, you know, that's why I came back to Tufts is to give back and teach a little bit about the business, you know, things that I, I learned when I finished my MBA so that, you know, maybe students wouldn't have to make some of the mistakes that I did when I was in private practice. But, you know, what you realize is that there's just no room, you know, the curriculum and the innovation that is occurring in the academic circles these days is going so fast and the curriculum is changing so much. You know, I've seen the curriculum change, you know, in the last three years twice because, you know, we're trying to expand now. And this second time is, is as a direct result of COVID-19, but, you know, maybe for the better, you know, I have believed for uh, quite some time that, you know, the way we do our academic model may not be the best way. You know, sending students out, we could actually solve the access to care problem immediately overnight if we sent our students to where they need care instead of having them come to us. 
So, you know, for example, in Boston, we have three dental schools and, you know, instead of having all those students in the center of Boston treating all of these patients, send them out to Western Massachusetts where they have no providers and dentists are closing their practice. Send them up to Northern Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont because there's nobody up there that can see these patients. Talk about the experiences and the work that they can get. That's the way to, to train them in real life dentistry is, is to put them out there where they're needed, not where we want to be. So, you know, it's not, it's not a popular view, but I do think that we may see that come around in the next 10 years or so, because I think the timing is right for it now, because we really need to start thinking more globally and not so much locally, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know a great school in Attleboro, Massachusetts that needs some good dentists to help about 50 kids out there. So. Oh, really? There you go. There you go. Okay. When you reflect back as a young woman, do you feel like you had confidence or were you, did you gain confidence as time went by? And if not, you know, what helped you the most? So I, I would say that what helped me gain confidence not so much in the biz. So in business, it's a little different. My confidence in school growing up absolutely came from playing musical instruments, performing on stage. I was in marching band, so I played drums and glockenspiel and twirled a rifle and a baton. And so all those opportunities to perform, whether it was music or I was in plays, I sang in chorus, all of that gave me confidence, the speaking confidence, right? I have two sisters who say to me constantly, how do you get up in front of people and give a talk? One of my sisters is in banking and she's leads meetings and has to do presentations and she doesn't sleep the night before. I mean, it is, for some people, it's crippling. So from that aspect of what I do, that's where my confidence came. From um, as far as in business, it's a little bit different. So I found that I've had to learn some skills in responding, taking time to kind of reflect before and not just jumping in with answers, being more curious, asking more questions to understand what's the best way to solve. And so what's helped me in gaining that confidence in business is just having mentors, working with the people who have been my managers. And there have been some not great ones and I've learned things from them too, right? So sure. <laughs> you learn from the good ones, you learn from the not so good ones. And, and you know, just taking time to, to listen and be curious that has helped me build a confidence. And that's an ongoing thing. That will never stop. I think you're absolutely right with that comment. I think that we never stop building our confidence, that every time we do something new, we lack confidence. And it's only by doing, taking that one step every single day to gain you know, experience in something that we gain confidence in doing it. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit more about your mentoring comment, because I, I believe personally that that's a significant help to women in general, that, that we all need a mentor in one way, shape, or form in our lives. And depending upon what it is that we're either trying to accomplish or do or be, 
that we need to have somebody help us and a coach and a mentor is something that is significant that can speed up the process, maybe not make it a hundred percent of the way, but because of course you have to put the effort in. But I think that having a mentor and a person to support you is really, really important. In your life, were your mentors more male or female or both? I'd say definitely both. I had, yeah, for sure. Uh, I had maybe a few more were female, but I'd say close to 50-50. And I think a lot of it, well, no, because in dentistry, the dentist that I worked for was also so encouraging, constant. In fact, he wanted to pay for me to go to dental school because he has two kids. Neither one of them went to dental school. And as he saw what my aspirations were and he gave me the opportunity to manage the, the practice, he hated to see me go and kept saying, you know, I'll help pay for dental school. And I kept saying, I don't want to be a dentist. <laughs> oh, isn't that a sweet thing though, huh? Yeah. Yeah, he let me do um, his local anesthesia form all the time before we were even licensed to be able to do it. He'd say, come on here, you can do it for me and always try to encourage me. And yeah, and he's still in practice, probably going to retire soon. But and in business, I've had, you know, several um, and it's mostly been managers who have coached me along the way. I actually had one manager who went back to school for his MBA because he was upset that I had my MBA and I was working for him. And he didn't have his yet. So he went back to school for his MBA. <laughs> That's called competition, my friend. That's called competition. I guess so. <laughs> he was afraid I was going to end up with his job, I guess. <laughs> there you go. There you go. A little bit of nudge for him, for sure. And, you know, you can't have a female have something that you don't have if you're a male. I'm just kidding. But, you know, that piece of us, you know, that and it is a little bit of an insecurity, right? That piece of us that feels a little bit threatened by something or somebody, you know, is is definitely a motivating factor. Because if, if you don't move, people are going to go right by you, right? That's true. That's 100% true. What do you think in dentistry inspires you the most? In dentistry today, it's got to be Dr. Steve Perlman. And Dr. Esther Wilkins inspired me for many years as a dental hygienist, and I did have the privilege of contributing to her textbook, and I do miss her. Which color was yours? So mine in school was green, and the two that I contributed to were a different shade of green, which was kind of fun when that came out and the blue so i had the blue one now i don't know if it's the same blue but someday we'll have to compare the blue copies because i still have my copy of esther's book do you believe that 1982 and i still have it my green one's right there on my shelf <laughs> it's so funny because any hygienist that you ever talk to knows exactly what color their book is and knows exactly you know, what that means to all of us, because Esther wrote the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, she was a pretty amazing woman. Yeah, she was. And she always, she reminded me of um, when to stop and take care of family. And she, you know, she lived close. I, you know, I'm not far from Boston. And so we would spend time. In fact, I sometimes would bring my kids up so that 
we could keep her company and she could, um, my son, RJ, my middle son, who's 27, is, still talks about her today, how impressed he was every time we spent time with her. But today, Steve Perlman, for sure, his work with Special Olympics, uh, his work with the American Academy of Developmental Medicine and Dentistry. I'm a member of that organization too. And that is, that's an amazing group because it's both physicians and dentists who collaborate. In fact, they just, they're constantly running these initiatives. They worked on an initiative where a young girl was not going to be added to the transplant list because of her developmental disability. And so they, um, you know, got, got whatever pull that they needed from the hospitals and from the um, local politicians to get that changed. And just recently they've been working on an initiative because during COVID, they were not letting parents into the hospital to be with, um, and, and your child can't speak. And sorry, they worked really hard to get that um, regulation changed so that families you know, weren't leaving their loved ones with no one to, to speak for them. So uh, in all of the work that, that he's done for that population, um, I really look up to him. It's too bad we couldn't get medicine and dentistry to collaborate on more. I mean, can you imagine the powerhouse we could be if we could just get everybody to just collaborate? I mean, overall health, it's just so silly to me that, that in this day and age that we still have, you know, the head, but the mouth is separate from the head and the rest of the body. And it's just, it's a sad thing that it still continues. And I see it on, on a regular basis in the academic world um, where, it, yeah, they just don't have the, the collaborative spirit with dentistry that I would like to see. For sure. But here's, here's an organization that's doing it for a population of people who have developmental and intellectual disabilities. So why don't we have an organization like that for those of us who are typical? <laughs> right? Good, good question. Very good question. You doing the same thing. <laughs> Very good question. Very good question. Tell us one thing that people would be surprised to know about you. I was lead singer in a rock band. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Was it in high school? Was it in college? It was in high school and well, one year into college uh, for, for weddings and parties and all that kind of stuff. And the most popular songs that were requested that people enjoyed hearing me do were Blondie. Do you remember Blondie? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is awesome. That's a good one. That's really good. There's so many sides to people, isn't there? I mean, it's amazing. I love asking that question because I, I learned so many fun things about people that, that, yeah, we would just never guess that you were a lead singer in a rock band. Goodness gracious, that's awesome. Um, I don't know if you know Gigi Garcia Rogers. Do you know Dr. Garcia Rogers? Anyway, she's a pediatric dentist in Massachusetts, and she's a lead singer in a rock band too, which blows me away every time I, I, I see a performance that she's in. It's just two totally distinct personalities, and I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. Good for you. So have you ever had an aha moment where you realize that you're doing exactly what you're meant to do? 
you know, that your sole purpose in life has been fulfilled because you just know on a day-to-day basis that you're doing just what you're meant to do. So I think the aha moment for me, and I'm not bragging by any means, but when I do that course on autism, and I remember where I was, I was in San Antonio, Texas, and I got a standing ovation uh, for a CE course in, at a dental convention. But the reason that was an aha moment for me is because I realized that, I remember hearing someone once say that, here's what it was, people will remember you for how you made them feel, not for what you say. And for me to have made those people feel that they wanted to stand for people with, it wasn't about me, it was, I felt they were standing for people with autism. I felt like they were standing for my son and that they were standing for people like my son. And that's for me when I knew, because I'll be honest, I am completely exhausted after giving a three hour course, because you've heard me be emotional in a five minute talk. Sure three hours and I'm exhausted. And every time I'm done and I talk with my husband, I say, I don't know if I can do keep doing this. It, it makes me tired and I'm getting older. And <laughs> well, it drains you, I'm sure, because you're reliving those emotional stories every single time. These are real to you. They're part of your history, right? So you're reliving them every time. No wonder you're exhausted. And I tell my husband, you know, if I can just get one more dental professional who was most of us want to help. We're just afraid that we're going to do something wrong. And so if I can get one person to just say, you know what, I'm going to just try it. It doesn't sound as scary as I thought it was. I'm just going to try it. Then that's one more person like my son who maybe is going to get the dental health, long life dental health that they deserve. So, so for me, that was an aha moment. Um, and I try to remember that moment when I'm exhausted every time I give a course to just keep on keep it on kudos to you because that certainly is a significant moment in time because and that you can continue to get keep giving it even though you're exhausted you know even more impressive because you know you're working a full schedule you you've got a busy speaking schedule and all of those things are exhausting on top of just being married and in a family and you know all the usual life stuff that we have to do so kudos, kudos to you. Yeah, and I'm so grateful to Hugh Freedy. Uh, they've always said that, you know, if you're in a school and you're visiting a school uh, and you just want to, you know, offer that program while you're at the school, go ahead and do it. And I, I just am always so grateful to them because there's a lot of other stuff I you know, should be and need to be doing when I'm visiting in schools and to, for them to give me the time to to share that message is important to me. So I'm grateful to them for that. Well, all the schools really need that message and, and they need that in, as part of their curriculum. Just like, you know, um, I don't know if you know Christina DeBono Paston, but, you know, incorporating wellness and yoga and meditation and thoughtfulness, mindfulness into our day-to-day activities at Tufts, it was a direct result of some of the work that she was doing. And Without a doubt, it has made a huge difference in the students and the the faculties, staff, everyone's um, environment. You know, I I think it's just improved the the positiveness of of our environment overall, for sure. 
Now, you know, you talked about being emotionally exhausted. How do you relieve stress when you do something like this? Is there something that you love to do that, that helps you to relieve the stress? Well, one of the things I've loved about being home every day and not being on the road every day is that I get to use my own treadmill or get to go outside in my own neighborhood and not have to be wiping machines down. And so that is, for me, it's physical health. I walk, but I walk fast. I won't tell you the nickname my husband has given me because he can't keep up with me. He won't go for a walk with me because he can't keep up with me. I am a very fast paced walker. And I can honestly, the days that I, when I'm on the road and I don't have the opportunity to do it, I just don't feel well. And you, like you talked about, you've got to do something to take care of yourself. And, and it affects, it does affect your entire environment. It affects the people around you. So for me, it's physical activity and really high pace walking. But of course, if, you know, depending on the environment, it might be swimming, it might be skiing. It's all these other things that I love to do that um, active. Yeah, which is great. Do you have a personal motto or mantra that you live by? It's my silver lining. Hmm. It's my silver lining. I really do always try to find that. And that's why I talked about Esther's quote about dancing in the rain, because, you know, with my, no one, no one is happy when their child is diagnosed with autism. I also, most people don't know this about me. My oldest daughter, we adopted, she was my husband's niece. And at two years old, we took her in in foster care. And so she's had a lot of stuff going on. Unfortunately, his sister overdosed and my daughter was old enough to know what was going on with her birth mom. And so she's had to live through all that. And so, you know, that's been a challenge. Then my son's diagnosis is my middle guy always says to me, mom, I'm stuck right in the middle. You know, (laughs) you never have to worry about me. Of course, I worry about him just as much as the other two. But through all of that, through every, you know, every part of life that is not easy, Uh, For me, it's been made easier by there's a silver lining somewhere in all of it. And she has taught me so many things about life and picking yourself up and brushing yourself off. And she's just she's always been a really great athlete and strong individual. Um, And, you know, she had a lot to deal with, too. So I learned a lot from her as well. So but I, I have no doubt that you helped to improve her mindset over the years. Because, you know, as you know, that it could could have gone the other way and she could have gone down a dark hole. And yet I'm sure that you and your husband are one of the biggest reasons why she's been able to be okay. So another reason to give you a lot of kudos there, girlfriend. Gosh. (laughs) Do you have a guilty pleasure or a secret dream that you want to share with the audience? My guilty pleasure is ice cream. It's that simple. <laughs> and I try so hard every time. I like I think I can look at ice cream and gain 10 pounds. So I try so hard, but that is my guilty pleasure and you know, that's the thing that I'll sneak if I get an opportunity. Also my friends know I'm a huge fan of Laffy Taffy. So ah. gooey gooey Laffy Taffy and ice cream. Those are my guilty pleasures. How do you manage taffy as a hygienist? 
<laughs> no, now everybody who's watching knows that that's my guilty pleasure. Yeah, exactly. But of course I tell my patients, that's the worst thing you can chew. It'll pull your fillings right out. That's like eating sugar daddies. Right. You know, growing up, I had, yeah, my uncle had a convenience store just down the street from where I lived growing up. I blame it on him all the time because I'd go in there with like a quarter in my pocket. And he'd say, he'd give me a little brown bag. He'd say, go put what you want. <laughs> so, oh, how sweet. I was always, always a candy eater, but, but lucky it didn't uh, affect my teeth. <laughs> I was one of the lucky ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. How about a secret dream? Any secret dreams? Trips, I oh yeah, oh trips for sure. Love, love to go to Ireland to where my family's roots are and back to Portugal. I had a chance to go to Portugal when I was 13 with my grandparents and I was young and didn't appreciate it. But now um, those are the two places in Europe that my husband has family in County Clare in Ireland. So, and I, I've got to find out where my heritage is from and we want to go to Ireland someday and explore. Yeah. And then his family also has a Portuguese background so I can show him around Portugal. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, it has been an absolute pleasure spending time with you, Karen. Thank you so much. And thank you for all you're doing in the world of dentistry because you, you wear a lot of hats and I must say that I'm, in awe of what you've been able to accomplish, even given the challenges that you've had in your personal life. So congratulations. Good for you. MJ, thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate what you're doing. This is, this is wonderful, going to be helpful to a lot of people. So it's great. Thank you. I certainly hope so. Um, I do. I think that, you know, we all need to know that there's other people that have challenges, but are still successful and still get up every day and you know, fight to make the next day happen. And um, I think we all can do it if we support one another and mentor one another, like we said earlier. You're right. Thank you again. It's excellent. No, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.